0: This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. We keep hearing that one of the promises in digital pathology will be the ability to develop AI-based tools and algorithms that will allow us to do things we've never done before. This gets a lot of people excited in the industry, particularly computer scientists, programmers, and machine learning specialists. But what about the role of the pathologist? Will it be important to keep the pathologist engaged in the development of AI algorithms and digital pathology workflows? If so, why and to what extent? And is this realistic? One of the things that's hindered surgical pathology, or maybe just the perception of it, is a lack of standardization and reproducibility in terms of molecular testing, IHC testing, as well as the interpretation of good old-fashioned H&Es. Part of the promise of digital pathology we hear is that we can help eliminate this variability or subjectivity, but wouldn't pathologists developing their own algorithms recreate the same old problems? Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. We're talking with Dr. Rish Pai, who is currently professor of laboratory medicine and pathology at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Pai has lectured nationally and internationally on many aspects of GI and hepatic pathology and has directed multiple GI and liver CME courses. He's the past president of the Roger Hadgett GI Pathology Society, He is a regular reviewer for numerous pathology and gastroenterology journals and serves on the editorial board of the American Journal of Surgical Pathology. Dr. Pai has published over 130 articles and written multiple book chapters in the fields of GI and hepatic pathology. We're going to be talking about why it's important to keep the pathologist engaged in these new algorithms. What Dr. Pai's personal experience is in developing new algorithms, was it a steep learning curve? Were there any surprises? What did he learn? Pathology is a unique specialty in terms of providing the definitive tissue-based diagnosis and purveying predictive and prognostic information that will become a part of the patient's treatment plan. What obligations do we have to provide input into the development of these algorithms? And what obligations will we have as the ultimate end users?
1: Dr. Rish Pai, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, uh, Joe. It's great to be here.
0: Glad you invited me. Nice to have you on. I think we're going to delve into a a fascinating topic today, talking about the development of AI algorithms and really how it impacts the pathologist uh, with boots on the ground, so to speak. Because I think we're, we're all aware we're coming up to this kind of inflection point where we're departing from the old ways of doing things and we're going to be embarking on new ways, which... I think most notably, we'll incorporate algorithms and artificial intelligence. So I guess, A, in the workflows, you know, how we triage cases, how we decide which pathologists get to review which cases. And then secondly, uh, predictive and prognostic algorithms. So how can we add prognostic information with the assistance of artificial intelligence and algorithms? So you have a unique perspective or a concern that we need to keep all of us pathologists engaged. What do you mean by that? And what, so, what does engagement mean, and, what, and why do you think that's important?
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. So, you know, when I first started getting into digital pathology, it's a disruptive technology. You know, we all like looking, or at least I I do. I like looking at my microscope. I'm used to it. The glass slides are there. It's, you know, I'm a GI and liver pathologist, so looking at uh, you know tubular adenomas, it's it's a few seconds. So, what what can digital pathology add? And the more I thought about it, and the more more i I started using digital pathology, just realizing it's it's just another tool that pathologists have, just like immunistic chemistry, just like you know molecular tests. And you know we're the end users of it. So it's something that we just need to incorporate into our practice, whether we're using digital pathology just to review slides for conferences or, for consultations, or we're using digital pathology for the more exciting stuff, like applying AI algorithms, enhancing and augmenting our diagnoses. So that's kind of where you know we're the end users, you know, the, the people with the boots on the grounds, and 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 I think we have to engage with it, even if it's maybe uncomfortable to you or you're not as into the digital platform as people who who live and breathe it. You know, we're, we're with digital pathology from the beginning. I think we're at the point now where just practicing pathologists day in and day out need to start engaging with digital pathology.
0: You know, what comes to my mind is, you know, with that, the adoption of any new technology, there's a kind of a curve, an adoption curve, where on one end you have the the, the renegades, the mavericks, the early adopters, so to speak, and they're probably going to be very interested in being the first to use it, very interested in participating in developing the new tools right then you have the massive middle and then you have the laggards right who who want no part of it <laughs> exactly and, you know and have you know having worked you know in various settings myself you know i kind of entered that world where there's an it department and programmers or basically people who are not physicians, right? They're not the end user, but yet they have the technological savvy and know-how and they ultimately design the tool. And there's kind of a goal for a chasm in the middle, right? Where you tell them what your requirements are. And then six months later, they come back and say, well, here it is you know, knock yourself out. And I think there's a very high risk of the thing not working or, well, or no, 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 this isn't really what we really wanted. When I said we need to count the cells, I meant this. Or when I said yeah. we need to measure the nucleus, we I meant this. I didn't mean that, right? So, you know, how realistic is it for the pathologist to be involved and give that feedback?
1: I think it's almost not a question of, is it is it realistic or not? It's almost like it needs to happen, right? Any tool that's going to be end up used by pathologists has to have pathologist input and i think it needs to start right from the beginning and i think it is realistic i think there's certainly a group of pathologists in the us that have been engaged with digital pathology from the beginning but but i think that needs to expand to everyday pathologists that are engaging and starting to use this it's not that you know 100% of all you know surgical pathologists cuz that's that's you know that's what i am so that's why I'm talking about when when I talk about pathologists, it, it, it's not that all of us need to be deep in the weeds on this, but there certainly needs to be a, a substantial percentage that that are engaging with digital pathology, helping design algorithms helping design software that we interface with. Because as you said, you know, there's the IT kind of infrastructure, the kind of people in in the back, and and they don't maybe know exactly what we do and what we need on a day-to-day basis. For example, I mean, I this is completely separate from from AI, but just simply designing an appropriate mouse that we need to view these or a, a appropriate system where we can move the slide around in a good way on a, on a big screen. And, and so far, I haven't really seen a good product for that and that's that's just dying to be developed. i played around with, you know, space mouse and some of these other things, but you know, just something like that, Joe. Just just having the end user engaged, it's a necessity, even if it's hard. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You you mentioned possibly about specialized tools just to suit the purpose of of pathology because those kind of tools are everywhere like there's video games that are opt- the controllers are optimized you know for playing that video game or even mm-hmm. in medicine i remember when i was a medical student i couldn't believe it that in surgery right i couldn't believe the specialized tools that they had in surgery just to do very specific tasks right so for a, like stapling up the colon there was a specific tool and there was another tool if you wanted to for an ilio jejunostomy, so you know, and just the various retractors, so everything was very highly specialized. But for, I think so far, like you said, for digital pathology, we're just using the regular keyboard and mouse. So, you know, where's our, where's our, all of our tools? Is that coming?
1: <laughs> you know, I just thinking about, you know, the, you see the ads for, for, uh, you know, those, those, uh, virtual, you know, goggles that you put on, and, you know, I, in some ways, it, it's kind of, we want to recapitulate what a microscope looks like to us, uh, but digitally. So, you know, I, I have thought about that. I think it's actually a space for ripe for development. Uh, Although we are, we're a small specialty. So, you know, to invest in that maybe is going to be difficult for some companies to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, something to look forward to. Yeah. So I kind of like to play devil's advocate. So thinking about, you know, involving pathologists in developing these algorithms, two things that come into my mind. One is in pathology or probably in many fields, there's always been this kind of push-pull tension between centralized testing and local testing, you know, in terms of developing the test, performing the test, being able to bill for the test. So I think a good paradigm is in breast cancer. We've been doing the prognostic markers, the ERPR HER2 key 67 panel for many, many years, 30, 40 years. And it started off as a ligand binding assay, which had to be sent to a centralized lab because it was complicated. It involved radioactive material. You didn't want your technicians glowing in the dark and so on. But then came the advent of immunohistochemistry and then those tests came back to being able to be performed locally in your own lab. And then now we have these fancy molecular tests like the Oncotype test or Mammaprint or other molecular assays, then back to the central lab. So there's always been kind of this push-pull Tension. So similarly with algorithm development, is it going to be concentrated centrally or is there going to be opportunity for pathologists to develop their own algorithms or is is it going to flow back and forth? How do you see that playing out?
1: Yeah, I think honestly, it's going to be an all of the above kind of approach at the beginning. For example, I I think there are certain algorithms that are relatively simple, right, that, that can be deployed, I, I think in pretty much any pathology lab just quantification of you know ki67 it, it's done down by by traditional machine learning it can be done you know by deep learning those those things probably can be deployed locally but but i think you know more complex algorithms that integrate ai that requires a, a little bit more post processing steps so you run the algorithm then you filter it through another step to generate you know a prognostic score Or you integrate that AI algorithm with molecular tests. uh, I think that's really exciting. Those kinds of things, I think, are going to require a little bit more involvement of a central site rather than deployed locally. So, I do think it's going to end up being kind of all of the above approach with some, definitely, some algorithms deployed locally, uh, run by pathologists during their sign out. I think that would be really exciting. But then sort of more complex algorithms that require multiple processing steps and particularly if they're integrated with other tests to come up with kind of a really overall kind of interpretation. I think that's going to require a little bit more centralized approach. Okay. And one of the things that's hindered pathology maybe
0: just in perception or reality is that there's human beings involved and my grade two might not be your grade two. And so on. So I think standardization and reproducibility has been a concern, particularly in H and E interpretation, and then also even in IHC. Right? You know, for the longest time, there really wasn't standard methods to do IHC. It's you. might do it a slightly different way in your lab with in terms of the antigen retrieval, which antibody are you using, how your what your cutoffs are for positive or negative. So, and now we have this promise or at least the perception that digital pathology is going to help us standardize things, particularly maybe looking through the looking at H and E images, right? So we're going to, instead of human beings counting things or human beings grading things, we're going to have an algorithm Uh, or image analysis is going to be able to standardize things. So large groups of patients are going to be able to be compared based on what this algorithm has shown. So, this is great, but you, Doctor Pye, are saying, "Well, maybe we can all produce our own algorithms, or <laughs> we can all be, we can we can all be involved. Uh, you know, we can all be involved in the development of new algorithms." So, aren't you undermining the great future that lies ahead of us? <laughs>
1: it's a it's a really really good question, and and I think you're absolutely right for for certain algorithms. I I, I think it's probably unrealistic to have you know each let's say a breast algorithm uh, locate you know developed by you know a group of pathologists and then you know another group is developing but i guess i would i would go back to you know the the use case and for example when the ground truth is pretty straightforward right when we all pretty much know it and and it's and it's just the algorithm needs just a lot of the training on on the various ground truths that are very established. I, I think in that situation, you know, you don't really need to have, you know, some, you know, specialized company or commercial product doing that. I think you could probably do that, you know, locally. What, what I worry is, is that if we wait, so so let, let me play the, the opposite question. Let's say we wait and we have these algorithms and we wait for various uh, companies to develop them. Number one, that's going to take a long time. But number two, what what are their goals right uh, you know it's a bit maybe more financial driven than you know what what are our goals what are our needs as as pathologists for example i developed an algorithm to to count eosinophils in in colon biopsies who who's going to develop that why would a commercial entity be interested in that i really do think it's going to be that all of the above kind of approach which will bring in that you'll have multiple competing algorithms out there, but that's going to be true even if we wait for commercial entities or, or or large academic institutions to develop them rather than you know individuals.
0: Yeah, it is. I think it is certainly interesting on the leading edge of of innovation. Um, like you said, there's going to be orphan diseases, so to speak, or you know areas where it wouldn't make sense, financial sense, for a company to develop algorithms, and so maybe kind of this grassroots approach may be useful, and interestingly, you coming from the Mayo Clinic, I think Mayo has kind of a a history of trailblazing somewhat you know, especially in you know, diagnostic pathology. The first tumor grade, the first paper on tumor grading was published by uh, Mayo Clinic pathologist, Eli Broder. And, uh, you know, I think at Mayo, you guys have been known for using some non-standard or four-tiered grading system where the rest of the world was using, uh, you know, three tiers. So so I certainly admire that, that spirit. So what about regulatory concerns? I think, you know, at least in my mind, I kind of conceptualize this as, a medical device where these algorithms developed are going to be medical devices and then distributed you know, by the various AI-based platform companies or maybe even the scanner companies, right, so that the pathologists can overlay this on their digital pathology system. The approval process would be FDA clearance or FDA approval, depending on the complexity. But I think talking to you, it sounds like we might also need to incorporate an LDT type approach where if we're developing algorithms in our own laboratory to suit a specific purpose, we might need to develop and validate this in a similar way as another laboratory developed test, or at least in surgical pathology, like maybe an IHC test that we bring up ourselves. Uh, So what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I I actually think the, the LDD approach is gonna be one that's, I think it's gonna be a little bit easier pathway to implement some of these algorithms. I think the FDA process and again I'm not not an expert I've I've interacted with the agency in different contexts and and I think they're they're beginning to look at you know AI algorithms in a in a way that that maybe will speed up the process but I think I think that's going to take a long time and that's something that that I think you know even institutions uh, large institutions are just uncertain of how to approach the FDA to get clearances so I think an LDT model could actually work because I think in the end of the day, when, when these algorithms are 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 being deployed, there there has to be a filter through a pathologist, right? You know, the algorithm will run, the output will appear. If it's a simple one that you can interpret, you know, right then and there, it, you're going to have the option to approve or not approve, just like we have the option to interpret IHC. So there's going to be that pathologist assessment of any output for most most algorithms. So I think the LDT approach makes sense to me, understanding that the FDA approach will, will work for, you know, particularly commercial entities that are trying to market algorithms. That's probably more suited for them rather than, you know, for example, an institution wanting to develop an algorithm that works for, for example, Mayo Clinic. We, we have a unique practice. There might be some things that are unique to us that we need to develop internally. And I think the LDT model is going to be the one that, that's going to work.
0: Yeah, I think it actually might be a little messier than people think or this romanticized vision that all of a sudden these algorithms are going to drop down from the sky and we're going to just, you know, plug them in and begin using them, you know, might be a little bit optimistic. I mean, it could be a little messier than that. And then I think also there should be a verification process involved also, right? So let's say even if you're getting an FDA approved model or algorithm, you need to make sure that it works in your lab, you need to do your own, maybe not a full validation study, but some sort of verification or something. And is there going to be the possibility of modifying algorithms? Do you
1: think? That's interesting. I, I haven't thought about, you know, let's say, uh, uh, you know, would what would, would commercial entities be willing to have it modified? I I think, you know, I, I actually have not uh, encountered that or, or, or experienced that, but I you know, having a, a, a kind of a, a base algorithm that can be deployed, but then modified and trained on some of your internal material might be an option for algorithms that, you know, maybe not all of them will work right out of the box. You kind of have to do some fine tuning based on, you know, your stains, the way that you you process the tissue, you know, the types of specimens you have, etc. So, you know, I, I think the theme from from this is it, it's going to take a lot of different pathways to get to the point where the end user, like a practicing surgical pathologist, is is using a variety of different algorithms developed in a variety of different ways. <laughs> and like yeah. you said, I think it is going to be messy. It just like it's a little messy now when it comes to molecular testing. There's a lot of different ways to do it. IHC, you know, different clones of antibodies that are out there, and you know, no one's using the same one. And different, you know, different labs using different ones unfortunately, I, I think until things converge, maybe towards some final, like let's say there's this fantastic prostate algorithm that ends up being the one that takes over the world. But until we get there, I, I think there's gonna be a lot of different different algorithms out there that we're just gonna have to you know test out, see if it works, see if it doesn't work, develop yeah. our own, all those kinds of things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So. So. Okay. So our problems are not going to be magically solved over <laughs> overnight. But yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's a good parallel, you know, between IHC markers. So I think notoriously one that is very messy is Ki sixty seven in breast cancer, right? Where people I think intrinsically believe that it's valuable. It's a proliferation marker, but there's just such non-standardization of the methodologies, you know, to actually perform the IHC. There's Complete variation in how it's scored, what the cutoffs are, and so there's so much data out there, but it's still a, really a, a complete mess in terms of assessing its its clinical utility. So I think that's a good point that we could see competing algorithms, right, for various disease states: prostate, breast, colon cancer, and, and many others.
1: Yeah, and you know, and, and I'm coming this from from kind of the outsider perspective, it just just viewing viewing what the landscape looks like from a surgical pathologist's point of view. You know, rather than being in the weeds and, 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 and just seeing there's there's going to, well, you know, I, I've been involved in some commercially, you know, some entities that are trying to make a commercial product and I've, I've seen that side of it. I've tried to develop some algorithms on my own with varying degrees of success and seeing that side of it. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone holds all the answers, right? It's going to be an interesting and exciting and, and kind of a, a rocky period probably before we we get to the point where there's clearly some established algorithms that everyone must have, just like right. there's a, there's IHCs that everyone must have, but but there's also going to be custom stuff out there.
0: Yeah. One thing that I think about is that pathology is a unique specialty because in a sense, much of what we do creates a permanent record, right? The diagnosis is written down and signed off on the molecular studies are quantitated and that is the patient's diagnosis that will stay with them and really dictate how they're treated compared to say other specialties maybe where you you know you hear a heart murmur like I oh i heard the heart murmur on monday oh it was gone on wednesday it's back on thursday right and so in one yeah. sense pathology is static right you're looking at a sample and right that is Immutable in some sense, it's not changing, but our ability to interpret it and, and draw conclusions from it is constantly changing. You know, so is there a higher bar? Is there a, a higher level of perfection or competence that is going to be required for these algorithms? You know, and then I guess the second question is, how do we know when to, when to reassess, right? Because presumably creating these algorithms, building them, doing the studies, is time-consuming and costly. So, how do we arrive at the minimal viable product, so to speak?
1: Yeah, and I, I think it, and I'm sure you, you've encountered this too, Joe. That when, when you talk about you know AI and and pathology, and and there's a sense, oh, you know, pathology is going to going to be replaced. We're going to have algorithms that that make the diagnosis. And I think that's where. If you're going to have an algorithm that makes a diagnosis where a pathologist does not is not involved, I think that's when the bar is extremely high, right? Like you said. We basically, you know, whether it's true or not, you know, it's there's a right diagnosis and a wrong diagnosis in, in, in pathology. I mean, there's certainly gray zones as we as we all know, but sort of those algorithms that that are the ones that are attempting to make the diagnosis and kind of remove the pathologist from from interpretation, I think they're the ones that the, the bar is is astronomically high. It has to be, you know, any error is gonna be horrible. I think most of the algorithms, in the vast majority, are gonna be the ones that are gonna be augmenting our pathology reports. And and that's where I, I get more excited about implementing AI. You know, of course I don't wanna see algorithms replace me. I wanna see algorithms make my job a little bit easier, but also make our reports more substantive. Make them more useful to pathologists, and I think there the bar is a little bit lower. There's going to be algorithms that are going to be uh, developed where you know it might work in 80% of the cases, and 20% it, it fails. Well, for those 80%, hey, it works really good. So we, do, do we want to throw it out? No, we just we just say for those 20% where it didn't work, we just don't report it. To your point, when do we say oh it didn't work, and when do we say it did work? And that's going to be where where again a pathologist needs to be front and center evaluating these, and if it didn't work, help retrain the model, including the data that the algorithm messed up on so it can relearn it. I think it's, you know, algorithms are living things. I don't envision they're going to be locked down. And that's not just how neural networks work, you know, where they they constantly need data and and, and they're going to encounter things that they haven't seen and they're going to need to to learn from that. So I guess that's the thing. Like when you think about AI making diagnoses, I think the bar is, astronomically high, but, but I think the vast majority, at least the ones that I'm interested in and the ones that I think most pathologists would find useful are the ones that augment our pathology reports.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now let's specifically, let's talk about some of the work you have done. So you are a GI pathologist. And so maybe tell us about some of the projects uh, you've been working on, or if you can't really get into any uh, (laughs) proprietary information, you know, just tell us roughly what it is, kind of what the goal was, how you went about doing it, most important for our listeners what what did you learn any
1: takeaways yeah no sure i i guess first off you know as i i mentioned a few times i i am not a card carrying you know informaticist or, or or do i consider myself an expert in in digital pathology but i think the perspective i have is just you know understanding some of the some of the problems that are out there in my specialty right so you know i've i've listened to some of the other shows where you talk about how kind of the pandemic as horrible as it was it did give there was some you know decreased Workload during that time, so that's when I, I said, well, let me dive a little bit more in, into AI and see if there's anything that that I can do on my own that that would be useful. So. I became principal investigator of a a colon cancer family registry grant. This is a long-running registry. It's been in existence for over 20 years, and it follows patients with colon cancer. And Mayo Clinic is one of seven sites around the world that's involved in this cohort. So, we have close to 7,000 colon cancers in this cohort, and and we followed these patients for quite some time. So, I had this great resource that I could use. So, I thought, well, this would be something to study. So I've been trying to come up with an algorithm that basically can identify a whole host of features in colon cancer, uh, you know, from tumor gray to tumor infiltrating lymphocytes to the uh, inflammatory cells in the stroma, tumor budding, which is a big, a big hot topic in, in colon cancer, you know, mucin content, necrosis, all those kinds of things, and, and see if I can come up with a prognostic score. And having this resource that I kind of fell into uh, of having all these thousands of colon cancers really has been such a boon because, you know, developing AI algorithms, you need tons of data. That's some of the fun things that I think a pathologist that's actively, you know, interested in, in AI and also has some, you know, knowledge of the disease can really, can really move the field forward. Because When it's in the hands of someone, maybe you know, who doesn't sign out colon cancer, doesn't kind of know what what some of the issues might be, uh, you know, the algorithms maybe aren't going to be as useful to the end user, which are going to be you know, expert pathologists in some cases. So
0: okay, so practically speaking, I know just so maybe let's get into the clinical aspects. You know, colon cancer I think is interesting in that grading hasn't really panned out very well as being particularly prognostic whereas other features in colon cancer different to other tumor types so for example in colon cancer there's these distinctions between left-sided and right-sided you know is it sporadic or is it familial is it Lynch mm-hmm. syndrome is it is it microsatellite unstable right is it associated with tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, and so on. So there's a lot of other factors that go into prognosis in colon cancer, maybe compared to to other tumor types. So I'm just wondering, have you been able to... Uh Get any takeaways or any anything that looks promising in terms of specific features?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's really cool. I I've analyzed around two thousand or so colon cancers to date with the algorithm that I that I've been working on and extracting all these different features from the colon cancers and and yeah, you know, tumor grade is is not really working out that well, but certainly the type and quantity of inflammation of, of stroma, the tumor budding. Tumor infiltrating lymphocytes—all those things are, are strongly prognostic, and it's things that, as a pathologist, we can recognize. But one of the things that I think AI can do so much better than we can do is is quantify these things. You know, we we can all recognize what you know what mucin is, but quantifying it in a in a way is really difficult for us, but pretty easy for a for a neural network to do. My end goal is to come up with different prognostic signatures. Signature one through five colon cancer, and each one is associated with some molecular alteration, and and some of that is panning out. So when I first started, I was really skeptical that, that you know this could work. But some of the things I learned, Joe, was boy, these neural networks are powerful. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a little scary. You know, it, it doesn't take much, and then it starts recognizing things, and you're like, oh my god, this is yeah. this is pretty cool. So uh, I I was a little bit blown away, to be honest with you. I I didn't expect you know, these to function as, as well as they do. So that made me even more excited about engaging with this technology.
0: I think that's something that's kind of emerging in digital pathology, I, particularly in developing predictive and prognostic markers. because we all know, intuitively, we know there's so much information there, right? There's, And it's interesting, you know, how these features, histologic features get translated or converted into data. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, but Historically, pathologists are limited to a few things, right? They would say, well, it's colon cancer. It invades through the wall. The lymph nodes are involved. The grade is either high or low, and it forms glands 50% of the time or not, right? And that's pretty much about all anyone wants to hear about it. But obviously that pathologist is observing so much more But if you were to say, oh, Dr. Jones, could you tell us if there's tumor budding, right? And there's like all these other things that could be prognostic, but there's not really a good way to standardize it. Or even if that was on the report, like maybe in the hands of an expert pathologist like you, you you might be able to to say, you know, to make a comment, but is that going to be scalable? Whereas I think with digital pathology, I think it kind of opens up that possibility.
1: For sure. I, I like to think of it as I'm converting an image into math, right? And then once it's in math form, you have numbers. Then you can do a lot of things with it. But when we're just looking at it and giving our gut impression, it's a little bit harder to translate that into something. So, so yeah, you, we're breaking an image and making it into math. <laughs> and, and you know, and uh, you know, not that I love math, but then then it opens up the a whole host of tools that you can use now. You know, that's that's what made me excited about it, and that's what made me want to you know encourage other pathologists to not. know we have to own this technology i don't think we can let let it you know just kind of wash over us right we kind of have to to dive into it even as uncomfortable as it as it might be at the beginning for sure
0: right so and i think in terms of advancing precision medicine really what we're after is creating tools i mean obviously we want to make workflows easier for pathologists but the ultimate benefit will be to the patients and in colon cancer for example you know, we haven't done well in terms of saying, so for in stage two colon cancer, the question is, does this patient need chemotherapy or not? Mm -hmm. Right? And most patients probably won't even benefit. So, if, with stage two, for our listeners, we're talking about tumor that is invaded into but not through the wall with with negative nodes. So, most patients won't get chemo, but a, a small subset will. So, are we anywhere close to developing tools to to better predict who's going to benefit from chemo with digital pathology?
1: You know, that's that's exactly the question. You know, I'm looking at too, uh, and and I've we have about 900 or so stage one and two colon cancers that I've analyzed so far. And and yeah, this this these kinds of uh, you know the, the data that you can get from digital pathology does predict which ones are are bad actors, which stage two and and even some stage one, which are minimally invasive colon cancers without lymph node metastasis end up doing bad. But part of this this colon cancer family registry, it's multiple sites, and so. I'm collaborating with a uh, with, with a group in in Toronto, and they're um, with a medical oncologist there who's taking a different approach to AI and in more more uh, loosely supervised approach, where uh, he's going to feed into a neural network uh, patients who got chemo and those who didn't, and and ask the question what predicts this patient will respond to chemo, more of a predictive biomarker. And and that's also exciting. So, you know, we're taking multiple different approaches. Uh, I'm doing a more classic kind of segmentation analysis to break the image up into different regions and quantify things. And and he's taken more of a different approach, which I think is also going to be quite powerful. So, I do think we're on a a bit of a, you know, exciting time where we're going to start start to use these technologies in in the, in the clinical in the clinical realm. So, I think we are getting closer, Joe. I think there's going to be some, you know, prognostic certainly and predictive hopefully biomarkers that can really tell us, you know, how these patients should be treated.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that is the holy grail. So, uh Dr. Rishpi from the Mayo Clinic. Now, let's tell us a little bit about you just before we wrap up. You know, what about how did you get first interested in digital pathology and maybe a little bit about digital pathology program at the Mayo Clinic?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've been in practice for you know twelve years now. I guess um, you know mainly focusing on on GI and liver pathology. Although the practice uh, in, in Mayo Arizona is still uh, general, so I, I do look at a lot of different things. And you know, I I think digital pathology has always been a little bit of an interest of mine. I I, I can't say that I'm you know I fell in love with it right from the beginning. But seeing the power of being able to look at images uh, anywhere, sharing with colleagues. Rather than having to take, you know, still pictures and emailing those, you know, you, you really quickly realize the power of digital pathology, even some simple things like measuring, you know, the width of the tumor or something like that, you start realizing the, the importance. And so I have to say, I, I wanted to be an early adopter and, and wanted to dive into it. So I did have, have that interest. You know, I've been collaborating with groups across the world in some cases, and I think having a digital platform that's web-based is has been really helpful to be able to collaborate too. So I think just seeing early on the benefits when when you can go digital beyond just you know in in the clinical realm more and more in the research space. But now seeing it come into into clinical practice is uh, is also you know quite exciting.
0: Yeah, I think that that's, (laughs) I think most people, many people outside of pathology, you know, so even those little things, like you said, like measuring a tumor, I yeah, mean, they would if they would if they would have seen a pathologist, <laughs> you know, a few, a few years ago, right? You you look at this thing under the microscope, you draw with your magic marker a line here, draw yep. here then you draw here, and you pull it out, it. and you go into your drawer. <laughs> it's always in your desk drawer. You pull out your ruler, <laughs> and you measure it, and you try to get somewhere in the ballpark. I mean, that's insane when you could just click, 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 you know, on, know. The, on the mouse in a matter of seconds. Yeah so I mean even those little things it's amazing how far we've come.
1: Yeah and so you know just just seeing it's going to come right digital pathology is going to come so at, at some point you just have to you know as much as I I do like looking in the microscope you got to you got to embrace the embrace the new tool and Mayo is is really on the cutting edge now. I, I think they've really embraced, you know. And I'm, I'm certainly I'm not leading the digital pathology program at Mayo. I'm, I'm just um, you know involved in, in, in to some extent in, in in Arizona. But but I you know seeing how how they're progressing and it's really a digitizing the practice program here. We really at Mayo want to get to the point where everything is digitized. We're, we're deploying and utilizing AI algorithms. And the timeline that they want to do this is pretty aggressive. I think in the next couple of years, it's going to be to the point where we're, we're looking at things digitally, we're for clinical practice, we're 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 using the tools that are you know AI tools that are that are available and you know they're they're helping me support my colorectal cancer algorithm too and and there's hope that maybe we if it works out and we develop a, a pretty cool prognostic and predictive uh, score that we can actually implement that at, at Mayo so yeah it's it's an exciting time i i think the next couple of years it's not going to take a long time to get there i think it's going to be you know uh, within the matter of a couple of years so yeah,
0: so let's wrap up and just tell us where do you see it headed? Maybe in five to ten years or beyond that. What 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 excites you about the future?
1: You know, and I think you've said this with with other guests. I really do think you know focusing on right case to the right person at the right time. That's going to be really cool, and that's going to be able to to be done quickly. And we can really get pathologists doing what they do best quickly. So I think that's number one, and that's kind of in a short term goal. But but I do think in the next two to five years, we're going to really see algorithms deployed in our practice and and because our clinicians are going to expect that that you know they're they're seeing algorithms deployed in radiology they're they're seeing in cardiology they're seeing in other other fields and And they're going to expect pathology to do that. And I think because we entered the fray a little bit later when things are a little bit more mature, I think it's going to not take us that long to get up to speed because, you know, it's just using similar neural network architecture and, you know, and just running it with pathology data. And I think that's going to help us get up to speed pretty quickly. So it's an exciting time, Joe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Bringing pathology up to speed. Well, our guest has been Dr. Rish Pai from the Mayo Clinic. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today.
1: This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.